This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is John Sales, whose latest novel is Jamie McGillivray, The Renegade's Journey. And this is, I think, the sixth novel? The sixth novel, yeah. I have two uh, short story collections as well. John Sales is perhaps better known as a director and a screenwriter. Among uh, his films that he directed, Baby, It's You, Lone Star, Passion Fish, Sunshine State, Eight Men Out, which is, I guess, my favorite because I'm a baseball fan, Brother from Another Planet, Mm -hmm. which was a pretty amazing film. Previous novel was Yellow Earth. Before we get into the details of Jamie McGillifray, I want to talk a little about your career in general. So let me start. You first began as a short story writer. Yeah, I was working in hospitals and factories and sending off short stories to magazines, trying to get them published, and uh, papering a wall with rejection slips. And um, a very long short story of mine went to Atlantic Monthly Magazine and kind of disappeared. They said, oh, we we didn't get a story by that name. And I was worried because I didn't have another copy of it. And I got a call from uh, Atlantic Monthly Press. And they said, we have your novella here. So somebody weighed this thing and sent it over. And, and they said, uh, you know, if you make this into a novel length, we'll look at it again. And that became my first novel, um, Pride of the Bimbos. And a little light went off in my head saying, you know, if I resubmit some of the stories that they rejected at the magazine, different people will read them. And then I landed like three stories at the Atlantic. How did you get involved with Roger Corman? That was my second novel, Union Dues. I I needed somebody to sell it for me because I was busy acting and directing in a summer stock theater company. And the guy who did it said, well, my literary agency has a deal with a Hollywood agency. And I said, well, I don't think my book is going to make a a movie, but uh, can I have their phone number? And I called this agency up and they said, well, you know, send us something that you've written in screenplay form. I had just read Elliot Azenoff's book, Eight Men Out, his nonfiction book, Eight Men Out. I adapted that without owning the rights, of course. And uh, it turned out that the head of the agency I contacted had been Elliot's literary agent 25 years earlier when he sold it as a book. And he said, you did a great job. You'll never get this thing made. You know, there's a curse on it, but come out here and we'll see what we can do uh, for you. They assigned me an agent. And it just happened that Francis Dole, who was Roger's assistant everything at the time at New World Pictures, had read some of my short stories in the Atlantic, passed them on to Roger, and he said, we should hire this guy. And so I got a job rewriting a movie called Piranha, which was basically a Jaws ripoff, I think (laughs) is the word. Yeah, ripoff. So uh, before we move on with that, uh, you just mentioned theater. So when you were growing up, was acting and theater, was that kind of where you were looking or was it as a writer? No, it was more as a writer. I, you know, when I went to college, um, I'd seen like two plays because my father worked in in a high school, and so I'd seen the, the Crucible and Charlie's Aunt, which is pretty much what they did for years and years and years in high schools. I remember going to a college production of uh, Wild Duck, 
and being upset that they, they didn't have Norwegian accents, you know, drama, as I called it back then. So yeah, theater wasn't even in my, you know, radar, but I had read a lot of books and I'd seen a lot of TV and movies. And so they were kind of neck and neck as far as storytelling, you know, media for me. But obviously I, I knew nobody who had ever published a book. I knew nobody who'd ever been involved in a movie in any way. So I didn't know how that worked. I didn't even know that some people got paid for books that they wrote. To this day, it's a not, not that much for most writers, um, but I thought that the, the reward was that they published it. And so I started se sending stories off and, and uh, not really knowing. I remember getting a, a nice rejection slip back from Ararat that said, we are we like your story, but we're the uh, Armenian quarterly review, and there are no Armenians in your stories. But you know, good luck. So I knew that little when I I started out. So I was really just and my first novel came in over the transom, as they say, which is oh, rare. Really, you didn't have an agent? Or? No, no. Uh, even in 1975 or 74, when I actually sent it off, that was rare. That there was still a publisher that that even had somebody reading something that had just been submitted from the outside. So when, when you go to Hollywood and you wind up with Corman, mm -hmm. I mean, how did that work? Did he say, okay, kid, here's what you're doing? And it also there were a whole bunch of other Corman people who later became directors. Yeah, there, there had already been some some very successful people. Francis Coppola was his, his main guy for a while. Peter Bogdanovich right. was an assistant and then directed a movie for, for Roger. And a guy named Zalman King all came out at the same time as juvenile delinquent actors from New York. Right. And they started making juvenile delinquent movies and they all ended up becoming directors. <laughs> and another guy, oh God, Mark Rydell, was all of them were these JD actors and came out and you know Cassavetes had the most the biggest acting career but they all were actors at first and had you met all of them I never met Cassavetes I've met family members and and most of the people who were in and around his movies and Peter Falk but I never met Cassavetes yeah it was um, Roger test marketed titles and so he knew that people wanted to see a movie called Piranha and later on a, a movie called Battle Beyond the Stars and The Lady in Red. And I was lucky in that very few screenwriters come to Hollywood and get a job right away and write three screenplays and they all get made into movies within six months of handing in the draft. That's so rare. What kind of money were you getting for that? Uh, you know, he was still a signatory to the Writers Guild, so I got Writers Guild minimum, which in, uh, I think this is 1977, 78, was $10,000. I got $2,500 for my first novel, and so it was like, wow, you know, <laughs> and, and this took me a fraction of the time to write, as, as an, even a short novel did. So it seemed like a good business to be in. And then I ended up writing a couple creature features, for directors who had worked for Roger, Joe Dante, who, who directed Piranha, went on to make The Howling, which is a werewolf movie. And then Louis Teague, who had directed The Lady in Red, went on to direct Alligator, which is a, another monster movie. Um, and then after I made my own movie, Return to Skawka 7, people said, oh, he does people too. There doesn't have to be a monster. And so I was able to branch out as a screenwriter. At that point, getting back to writing... Did you pretty much stop writing your short stories, or? Uh, no, I kept writing short stories. I didn't. I didn't have that much time to write novels, but every once in a while there'd be 
six months to a year when I would realize, oh, I don't have another thing to do. Why right. don't I go back to that novel? So uh, Los Gusanos, which was my third novel, I had started, I had one piece of paper, which luckily I never lost, that had like 50 chapter you know, descriptions on that one piece of paper. And I think I wrote, I had written about a hundred pages of it when I got a lot of screenplay work. And maybe four years later, there was this hiatus where I didn't have a job. And I said, well, I'm going to go back to that. I picked it up pretty well, although there was a chapter where, where there was a body found dead in the trunk of a car. This is Miami during the cocaine days. And I had no idea why I put it there. In the chapter that I wrote, uh, one of the detectives says, I guess it's just one of life's unsolved mysteries. And I kept going with the, with the book. Well, I think it was one of uh, Chandler's books where there was a murder that never got solved, too. Yeah, I think The Big Sleep, there's, there's yeah. you know, in, in, in the screenplay, there's some very loose ends there. And it was like, okay, but... You know, the book is really about Los Angeles and who he encounters on the way. It's not so much about who shot who. John Sales, so your first film, you did it on your own. There was no studio interference. No, no. I financed it myself, directed it, edited it myself. And in that way, it was it was a, a, a great film school because I hadn't gone to film school in that you got to make your mistakes without any pressure. And uh, the crew had never worked on a feature before. And I think one of our actors had had one day on a movie. So the actors had worked in theater, but they hadn't been on film before. And so everybody was really doing it for the first time. And there wasn't that, oh, this is the way that it's done kind of pressure. And that was Secaucus. Yeah. Your own political, uh, progressive political views are in there in a lot of your films mm -hmm. and in your books. Is that something that just came out because of your own politics or were you looking for material that pushed no, you in that it, it's kind of how you see the world and yeah. and the the dots that you connect you know and and so most of my novels and uh most of my films are about groups of people you know they have multiple lead characters right. and and you know they inter intertwine eventually or or don't and so there is that interest in people within a society. You know, who are the insiders and who are the outsiders and how is that defined? What's the tension between the official story and what's really going on? Um, and I'm, I'm not obviously the only writer who's doing that. But I also kind of allow the characters, once I'm in their head, to, to, to throw down their vision of the world. So every character does not have the same version of what's going on, and often that's what creates the drama. You remained as soon as you could, or became as soon as you could, an independent director without oversight by the suits. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was a very deliberate move on your part not to get too involved with Hollywood. No, I, I would say it's more of a mutual thing, <laughs> you know, which is... is you know, there were people who would say, geez, I love your movies, but we can't make one of those. You know, there's no way we could make our money back on one of those. Certainly, just the fact of making a studio movie, things are going to be more expensive. People are going to charge you more. You know, the the actors are going to expect more, whatever. But also, it's just, you know, th this is going to be hard for us to sell. 
you know, in the way that we usually sell things. We can't envision. This is a more complex movie than we usually handle. And so it hasn't been so much that I said no, is that, you know, I, I just, you know, I've, I've only been offered, I think, once a job directing a movie where the people offering me the job actually had their money. And that was Ryder Corman. And that was a long, long, long time ago. So generally, either I've come to studios with projects and only once or twice have they said yes, or we found a, another way to finance the movie. Did you do a lot of guerrilla filmmaking? It's all guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, my last movie, I had four weeks to shoot. Um, we shot, we had about, oh, 62 locations in two different countries in four weeks. And so you're always moving your base camp at least once during the day, sometimes twice. We were shooting on the California-Mexican border when it was, it was 117 degrees at seven o'clock at night. Um, and, you know, gaffer's tape wouldn't stick to anything. And, you know, so it, you, you, you basically, you start out with what you want to do and then you find a way, oh, if it's raining, guess what? It's raining in the story too. Well, I think people like uh, Eric Romare use that. In fact, supposedly he would say, we need a scene where it's snowing and the next day it would snow and people are going, this guy's a miracle worker. Yeah, I don't have that control over the weather, except when I'm writing fiction, which is one of the great things about writing fiction. In my book, uh, Los Cusanos, I do the Bay of Pigs invasion in about seven or eight pages. And I don't have to worry about, are we going to see their feet? Because they all need boots. I've got tanks, I've got planes, I've got all that kind of stuff that I'd never be able to afford you know, on a movie budget. But um, you get to create them in fiction. And Jamie McGillifray... As you were writing it, in your mind, were you kind of seeing a John Sayles movie translated into the page? Well, very much so in that the original idea came 20 years earlier than I started writing. Robert Carlyle, the Scots actor, called me up. I think he was on a job in Hawaii, and I had never met him, and somebody had recommended me. And he said, I have this, this idea about a movie that would be uh, Highland Scott, who's defeated you know, he's a rebel and he's defeated at the Battle of Culloden. And instead of hanging him, the English transport him to the New World and he gets involved with the Indians. And I thought that was a great idea. And I wrote screenplay on spec. And we went over and met Robert and scouted in the highlands of Scotland for castles and locations and then came back to the States. And we scouted, you know, where the former Georgia colony was, the Florida-Georgia border area. We scouted in central Pennsylvania, where a lot of the book happens. We scouted up in Canada in some original growth forest and never could raise the money to make the movie. So after about five years of that, we gave up. And 20 years later, I just felt like it's such a good story. What if I, I make it into a novel? And, and what tends to happen when you do that is that you your research goes much deeper than it did before, right. and the story can expand. So Jenny Ferguson, who is the other main character of the book with Jamie McGillivray, uh, was a minor, minor character in the screenplay. And then I just realized, well, she gets to the new world too, and how does she get there, and what's her, her path? And I discovered in my research that one of the ships that left Liverpool with these rebel prisoners was carrying some women. And just before it got to Jamaica to basically sell them into slavery, it was taken by a French privateer 
and the people were taken to the island of Martinique and given their freedom. And I said, well, that's the first step. You know, she's in French-speaking country, and I eventually want her to get up to Canada, so that's a good step. And wow, for a barefoot clocking girl who's been eating oatmeal and oxblood, all of a sudden there's mangoes and French cooking. You know, wow, what a vacation. So that was a lot of fun for you. Did you go down to Martinique? It's the only place in the book, and it goes to a lot of places I haven't been yet. <laughs> uh, what I did find, I read French well enough. I found a bunch of books that were written by Frenchmen who were visiting Martinique in the late 1740s, early 1750s, describing this new incredible colony land and what was going on there. So I had a pretty good idea of what was happening on that island before the volcano blew up and <laughs> erased one of the cities. Let's go back to that original screenplay. So that was around... That would have probably been uh, late 1990s. Right in the middle of your directing career. That yeah, would yeah, it was something that we were hoping to make. And, you know, it was very ambitious, obviously. Yeah. There are ships involved. Jamie has to be on these prison ships and... Does, as does Jenny and cross the, the Atlantic. And there are basically three great wooden ships in Cornwall, England that appear in every movie that has an old wooden ship in it. <laughs> so we went there and met the guy who runs those and they show up in Master and Commander. It's those ships and, you know, in Apocalypto, they show up at the end. And so, yeah, it, it you know, it was a big, a big ask for an independent filmmaker. To, sure. You know, I was having to go to big studios and saying, are you interested in this? Well, of course, now you could do everything CGI, so you wouldn't have to do that. Not everything. You know, it, it, you could do a lot. You still have to dress the people up. You still have to give them props. You know, it, it's one of the things that when you deal with the, uh, the, the streamers these days, because they had a few years where they didn't make as much money as they wanted to, and they're a little worried, they say, oh, it's not period, is it? You know, and even though, you know, Westerns sneak in there every once in a while and science fiction, you know, they'd much rather make something contemporary with zombies in it. Or bad rom-coms. Yeah, one of yeah, the two. yeah, yeah. Zombies are cheap, though. <laughs> Let's go back to that screenplay, John Sales. So the screenplay, does that more or less follow the pattern of Jamie here in the book? It is the historical template that I hung everything on, which is that it starts at the Battle of Culloden, ends at the Battle of, you know, of Quebec. And right. that's a lot of years, you know. And so he has time to suffer quite a bit and be kind of a, a, a slave of a lowland Scot down in the Georgia colony, escape, and then he's captured by the Shawnee and Indians and sold up the river. And he's a slave for quite a long time of the Lenny Lenape. Who, who are the Delaware Indians, we used yeah, to call Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because with them for a long time through the book, uh, what kind of research did you do on the Lenape? There's quite a bit written. Um, oh, really? Uh, having adapted Clan of the Cave Bear and trying to do research about, you know, what was happening back in the Neanderthal days, there's a lot more than there was for that. There are quite a few accounts of the council meetings that they had in negotiations for land with the Europeans, with the Pennsylvanians. I mean, back then it was generally until the the kind of proxy war that we call the, the French and Indian War right. started, it was, okay, you know, we, the, the Lenny Lenape, are meeting with the Pennsylvanias or the Virginias or whoever the colony was who were encroaching on, on your land. 
And those were very well documented by the white people and by the Indians. Uh, the Indians would do it in these kind of, you know, bead, bead language or pictographs of what happened. And the white people would have it written down in English or in some cases, Dutch or German or whatever the main people spoke. They rarely, if you read them, uh, agree with each other about what the deal was. And that's one of the things that you see in the book and is that Jamie is a linguist. It's, it's how he survives. Uh, when you meet him, he already speaks English, French, French. Scots, Erse, which is Scots Gaelic, right. a little bit of Latin. And then he learns Lenny Lenape. And those councils, very often you had five interpreters because you didn't have a one-to-one kind of thing. Somebody who was a Haudenosaunee, a, a Iroquois Confederate Indian might be listening to the, the Delaware Indians, and then he was speaking French to somebody who could also speak German, who could also speak English. And that takes a long time to, to get the word through, and it changes quite a bit. I mean, there's a scene where George Washington plays a little role, and he has mm-hmm. to bow down to go into the longhouse. Mm-hmm. Characters like Shingus, Bone, uh, are these, or Saint-Cyr, are, they, are they, those real people? Um, uh, Shingus was, not, he was Shingus the Terrible, and he, he was, his grandfather was Tammany, if you've ever heard of Tammany Hall. So the Lenny Lenape were back in Manhattan in those days, and they were pushed back to first to the Philadelphia area, and by the time we joined them, they're in kind of central and western Pennsylvania. He had two brothers who were older than him, and when their father died, the English liked to just say, hey, you, you, whoever they thought was the most tractable, you're the king. You're the king of the Delaware. That's in the book. Yeah, Yeah, and we're going to deal with you. And so he didn't want to be the king, and they just said, you're the king. He wasn't even there when they named him the king, and he felt like, well, that's because my two older brothers they know are more difficult, and they think I'm stupid. And so he really didn't like the role and was more of a, a, a war chief than a peacetime chief. And then finally, when the the French and Indian War, what we call the French and Indian War, the Europeans call it the Seven Years' War, broke out, here's this opportunity in a way, but also, do I go with the French or do I go with the English? Who's going to win? Because they really didn't care. You know, it's just like... we Let them be kill each the, other. Yeah, exactly. We want to be with a winner. And there was this Lenape saying of, you can't be neutral in the woods. You have to stand on one side of the tree or the other. And he tries to hold out as long as he can. And once he makes his decision, it's the right one for a couple of years, and then it's the wrong one, and how do I get out? He was a, a real guy, and he actually survived several years after the, the French and Indian War, but he was just hated in Pennsylvania because he ran these, these raids on English-speaking settlers and Dutch-speaking settlers. Of course, it would have been different if the French had won, but they were rather they couldn't match the British. You know, I think it was political will. There were people in France, and certainly many of the officers and politicians in La Nouvelle France, they were so corrupt that they were stealing from their own soldiers. Famously, this guy, Monsieur Bigot, who was in Quebec, was he was in charge of all the finances, and he was skimming from everything, living like a pasha. Um, you know, even on, on a you know kingly scale there in Quebec, and so their soldiers were badly equipped, badly fed, and so if they had a chance to surrender, many of them said, "Get us out of this ice box," which is what they they called the thing, and let us go home or just fight somewhere where it's warmer. 
John Sales, one thing I found in reading Jamie McGillifray was that how little I really knew about the French-Indian War, because mm -hmm. it kind of disappears in the background with the revolution coming mm -hmm. afterward. But you go into detail about the Fort Duquesne battle mm -hmm. and the Quebec battle. And Fort Duquesne is Pittsburgh. Yeah. Braddock's defeat was one of the hugest defeats of its era for the English army. And, and it was just kind of bad luck and bad planning. Braddock was not a very, he was a guy who'd, you know, he, he was the son of a general, but he mostly had these non-combat posts. And they finally, at the end of his career, they said, well, we'll give him this cherry and he'll go and he'll, you know, kick those French out of there. And he just, his lines were really, he built this incredible road with axemen and everything all the way. And they were just going to kick the French out of this fort they had built. It was now Pittsburgh and where the three rivers meet. And they just got caught in a crossfire. And, and you know, a half hour one way or the other, and they might have gotten there and kicked the French out. Um, but it was just this debacle. George Washington got a couple horses shot out from under him, and he was already sick with the bloody flux. But he survived it. And that at that point, when the news got back to, to, to England, they had to say, are we going to double up and really put our, our, you know, backs to this thing? And they decided to do that, which the French did not really. Um, so they sent this young General Wolfe over who was sickly. He was another, you know, son of a military leader. He wanted to make an impression. And by the time he got to Quebec, he was suicidal. He was, I'm going to die of these diseases I keep getting over here. I'm so frail. I'm going to go out as a hero. Who cares how many of my own soldiers I take with me? When you're working on this book, I guess a little different in the film, but in a book, uh, trying to balance your own fictional needs mm -hmm. with the actual his history. I mean, the film... It seems, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems that you kind of have to really deal with so many elements that you can't necessarily stay within history. But in a book, it's different, or do you see them as the same? You know, the, the way I do it, it's not that different. Oh, really? Um, I, yeah, the, the screenplay was, I had done half of my research when I sat down to make this into a novel. Um, I just went deeper into some of the areas that I didn't get into in the screenplay. I find that the actual history is as or more interesting than what people can make up. I invent characters who run around within it. So uh, Lieutenant Sancier is, is a composite of various lieutenants who ended up having to go up to Canada not so willingly and, and fight up there. Jamie is a composite of, of actual characters. But then there's the real people who, you know, George Washington is in there and you know, uh, Fielding, who wrote Tom Jones, was a virulent anti-Jacobite satirist, you know, and he shows up there early. What I found was that both in the screenplay and in the book, I could follow pretty much day by day, month by month, week by week, what actually happened, and then just find a way for my characters to be taken by those tides. How would I get Jenny well if she's, you know, the mistress of a French lieutenant? You know, a bunch of those people were told, oh, you're having a nice time down in Martinique. Well, guess what? You're going to Canada in the middle of the winter. 
you know, and there she is in Canada. I chose not to actually look at maps while reading mm -hmm. it. I, I decided to play the role of Jamie, who most mm -hmm. of the time didn't know where the hell he was, mm -hmm. which I guess kind of a good idea because then you're lost until you see the signposts. Yeah, and I think what is difficult for people now is if you know that it's Pittsburgh, you think about that, whereas then the superhighways were the big rivers. So controlling the Ohio River was a huge deal. And Indians were fighting with, with within tribe to tribe over who controlled parts of that river. And certainly when the French and British ended up showing up there, you know, having a fort right there where the three rivers came together, what's now Pittsburgh, was a kind of important spot militarily. You know, once you got up into the Great Lakes, once again, those are super highways. Right. Uh, if you've got to cut your way over the mountains and through the woods, you got to have 300 axemen you know, who do nothing but, you know, British soldiers would not dig or chop down trees. That was beneath them. You know, they were pretty low on the totem pole, but, you know, okay, if we do that, you have to pay us extra, and they would never want to pay them extra, so they would pick on people on, you know, and the same thing with the, the people who moved the cannon um, were often not soldiers. They were sometimes slaves in the case of, of the English, and sometimes just locals who they just said, you want to make a few bucks move our cannon around during the battle. Sean Sales, what was your most recent film? The last film that I wrote and directed was called Gopher Sisters, and that was six years ago, maybe. Edward James Olmos was the best-known actor in that. The last thing that I, I wrote that somebody made was a nice Mexican movie called Sonora, and I, I won an Ariel, which is their Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for that. And, you know, Features are very hard to get made these days, especially dramas. So if it's not yet another oh, Fast and Furious franchise movie or you know Batman or something like that, it's really, really hard to get the money together. Even the studios are having a hard time. Is that the reason that there's been nothing in the past few years? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I have a half dozen movies I'd like to make that I've written that we haven't been able to raise the money for. John Sales. IMDb lists two screenplays, The Grey House and Django Lives. Mm -hmm. I've written over 100 screenplays. And oh, those really? are among the ones that I have written that uh, nobody has made yet. Grey House actually may be getting made in Bulgaria, but who knows how much of my screenplay they'll, they'll use or where they'll get all the African-American people, um, <laughs> which they'll need. That's set in uh, Richmond, Virginia during the Civil War about a woman who's probably the best spy for the Union Army. Southern-born woman who just was not with the Confederate cause. One of her former slaves, who she had secretly freed, when Mrs. Jefferson Davis said, oh, I'm having such a hard time you know, getting help here in this new city when the Confederacy moved their capital to Richmond. She said, oh, I've got the perfect person for you, who had been educated in Philadelphia and Confederates thought she was illiterate, and she's there dusting off their papers all the time. Um, so that's a great story. That That's going to be a miniseries, potentially. And then Django Lives was is kind of an extension of the, the two Django movies that Franco Nero made, right. uh, directed by Sergio Corbucci way back when. And this one picks him up uh, when he's his age. He's in his 70s. And he is uh, working as a horse handler and extra on the set of Birth of a Nation. 
and then starts to realize, wait a minute, the guys in the hoods are the heroes? And things, you know, <laughs> turn into a Django movie from there. So you have, you have about 100 screenplays. Uh, when you're looking at these unmade screenplays, mm -hmm. are you also thinking, hey, you know, novel? You know, I'm working on one right now, um, a screenplay that I wrote several, several years ago called To Save the Man that's set at the Carlisle Indian School in 1890-91, which are the years of the the um, ghost dance and the uh, massacre at Wounded Knee. And I'm pretty much done with that. I'm, I'm going to, you know, do one more run through it as a novel. But we we tried to, to raise money for that for years and years and years and just did not succeed. And once again, I just felt like, that's such a good story. Maybe I'll try to make a novel out of it. John Sales, as I was reading Jamie McGallifrey when I started, kept thinking of the TV show Outlander, mm -hmm. because that actually gave me a background on Culloden that I wouldn't have had. You know, she's really done her research and, you know, once again, has this framework of actual events to hang, you know, the right. personal story on. I was not aware of the books until the TV show came out. Right. And then people say, oh, you should read the books. You know? And I avoided reading the books well, while of course. I was you know, <laughs> doing this because you, you, you hate to feel handcuffed like, oh, I can't do this because somebody else did it. But I'm actually speaking with uh, Diana Gobbledone, doing, you know, talking about our research and stuff like that. The other element of the book is the picaresque novel of people like Henry Fielding. So <laughs> that had to have been in the back of your mind in the writing of the book. Yeah, I mean, some of my research was not just reading historical, you know, background for for the time, but I read a bunch of Fielding. I read Tom Jones and a couple of his other books. I read a guy named Tobias Smollett, who was a contemporary. I read quite a bit of Dickens. I read Robert Louis, Louis Stevenson. You know, I had read some of those before. Catriona, which is uh, the sequel to Kidnapped. Some of my characters are are in that. Some of the the real-life characters show up in that book. And just to get a feel of the sense of humor of the time, uh, you know, obviously some details of things. You know, Jamie ends up in the being held in this, this um, debtor's prison that Dickens' father was held in. And uh, so there's, there's quite a, a good descriptions of that place. And, and it's always nice to kind of get a feel for the language. You know, right. um, and they were just starting to have the characters speak like characters really spoke every day, upper and lower class. You know, Dickens is very good with that. You made a choice to not translate most of the French because there were entire sections of the book where the conversation, and I kind of didn't quite know. I mean, I could have looked it up. Mm -hmm. This is Jenny, and she's, you know, this yeah. Scotswoman, and she has some English, but she mostly speaks Erse, which is Scots Gaelic and Scots. And she's learning a new language. And I want that feeling of being a little bit lost. And so what I try to do is either use a cognate, let's say you say explosif. Well, it looks like explosive, you know, so that, that you have some anchor right. in that French sentence, or you ask a question in French and answer it. You know, so you give a context. So people can figure it out, which is what she's doing at first. And eventually she ends up really speaking French, probably with a pretty thick Scots accent. John Sales, what were you doing during the pandemic, during the shutdown? I did a lot of baking. I did some of the writing of this book. It took me about a year to write the book once I decided to do it. 
I have a, a kind of hard and fast rule that I can only do one week of, of research and then I have to sit and write some fiction for about a week and then I can go back to the research. Um, so you just, you, you keep your momentum going um, during that. Um, but I realized that in about two years of COVID, we used two tanks of gas. So we didn't do much traveling, um, which I don't think most people did. And I saw a lot of movies, played some basketball. I think I got uh, one of my knees replaced. I just got the other one replaced. It was an interesting thing in that the pressure that you feel of raising money for a movie was gone because nobody was getting anything done pretty much during that period. It was a strange time. And it, and still, I think it's 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 kind of like leap year in people's heads. Did that right. really happen? Whenever I talk to people about how long ago something was, there's this gap. And I'm not sure if that gap exists. It's just sort of there. On my tour for Yellow Earth, my last novel, my last reading was in Seattle. We got on the airplane to go back east. And there was this report of this nursing home right near Seattle where this disease had finally hit that we've been hearing about overseas. And by the time we got back to the East Coast, people were saying, this is for real. You know, don't go out, you know, don't go to the grocery store. And, you know, if, if you have any toilet paper, don't let anybody borrow it. We've also gone through a pretty, and we're going through a pretty rough time politically in this country mm -hmm. with the rise of Nazism again. Mm -hmm. I mean, overt. Yeah. You as an artist, do you focus at all on that? Do you think about that? How does that pop up in books or in possible films or in this book in particular? Well, I think you, you hope that people, when they see a movie you made or something you know, you've written that they're going to read, that it makes them think about some big general ideas. How does anybody you know, get together and do something in concert? You know, uh, There are so many different factions in this. It's hard to say, you know, okay, are the English, are they the savages or are the, you know, the Iroquois the savages or are the Delaware the savages, you know, because they're all, they're all pretty much slaughtering each other over stuff that we don't think is worth it today, but it was vital to them. It was land. It was, you know, opportunity. It was how you live the rest of your life. Just to try to get people to examine what's going on and think about it. And certainly when I write anything contemporary, or even when I was writing creature features, there's ways to sneak some stuff in. And, you know, um, certainly Piranha starts with a program during Vietnam. To, what if we put Piranha in the rivers of North Vietnam? You know, wouldn't that mess them up a little bit? <laughs> it never gets to North Vietnam, but it comes back like Agent Orange did eventually to haunt us, you know, back at home. Well, of course, there were also more political movies like Matewan too. Yeah, Matewan I made very specifically, it was right at the beginning of the 80s, right after Ronald Reagan had gotten in. And one of the first things he did, and it was very symbolic, it did not have to happen, is he busted the Air Traffic Controllers Union. Right. And almost all of those guys lost their jobs. Within about a year, pretty much everything they had asked for, because it was mostly about safety, you know, and the people who were juggling those airplanes not being fried on the job had been quietly instituted, but the, the guys who went on strike had just gotten fired. And I just felt like it was a good time to remember why we have unions, why they were necessary, why they still might be necessary. It was a story that I had kind of stumbled on when I was 
hitchhiking across the country in the late 60s and early 70s. And a story I didn't know. It was a labor history story I didn't know. But even the first time I heard it, it struck me as, oh, this is like a Western. I mean, it ends with a shootout on Main Street at high noon. And it's like a gunfight Western in that it it, it was a, a series of confrontations that almost got violent leading up to this final big confrontation. You wrote, according to IMDb, three episodes of The Alienist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. The Alienist had been around for quite a long time, at least twice during it in that history. I had been approached by people, you think you might want to adapt this into a movie? And then it would go away, and I wouldn't know why it went away. And finally, Hussein Amini, who was one of the writers on, on the series, uh, had this idea, well, why don't we... Maybe they can't get it made as a movie. What if we made it into a miniseries? And one of the reasons that's attractive to people who make, you know, things is that you amortize the cost of the set over several episodes right, instead yeah. of just a two-hour one-shot thing where if your opening weekend isn't very good, you've lost all your money. And so I was one of several writers. I was farmed two out of eight sections of the book to write. That went a certain amount of time. Then they hired a director, and then I was one of the, the writers they kept on to, to work on it. And I have to say, I liked all the people a lot. I didn't love the group writing kind of thing. We were kind of doing our own chapters and then talking about right. it and whatever. And finally, it, it looked great. I thought the, the production designer did a great job especially since they had to shoot it in, in Prague, you know, because most of the stuff in New York doesn't look like that right, anymore. Yeah. It's a really, really interesting, good story. Uh, I have not seen the second season that they, they I think they bought the second book, the sequel. Yeah, and, I, and I interviewed the author for the second book. Uh, so. Interesting guy. I mean, yep. really, he's a, a war historian. He's written some books on guerrilla war and things if, like that. If I remember his father... He was one of the beats. Yep. He was one of those guys who hung out with uh, Kerouac and all those guys. Yeah. I, I think he was convicted of murder or something like yeah. that. <laughs> Whether he was convicted or not, I think he I was. Don't, I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> John Sales, a couple of quick questions. First off, if you can make another movie, what would it be? And the second question is the next book. The two movies that I have kind of in the chamber hoping to, to make one is based on a, a book by a cowboy author written in the 1920s. The book was called Paso Por Aquí. We're calling it uh, I Pass This Way because I've already done a couple movies with Spanish titles and it doesn't help at the box office. And that's a, a Western that we would shoot in Durango in, in Mexico. Very nice story. Who's the author? Eugene Manlove Rhodes, who was a cowboy. He was very well known at one time, cowboy writer, who was known as the best writer and the worst poker player in New Mexico, <laughs> um, which is why he didn't get rich, even though he sold a lot of his, his uh, books to the movies. And then the other one is a, um, a movie I'm calling uh, Patronage, which is set in a bar in Chicago, a couple blocks from the, the hotels on the night of the police riot at the 1968 Democratic Convention you know, mess. <laughs> that would be a slightly less expensive one. You know, we've been trying to make those for a couple of years and who knows. And the next novel? To Save the Man, which uh, I'll be looking for a publisher for it soon. It takes a long time to get a book published now with the 
supply chain problems with paper and ink. The publisher was saying, well, if we made a deal with you tomorrow, it would probably be a year and a half before the book came out. When did you first send it? Was, I, I was finished with this, I think, two and a half years ago. So it took about a year to get a publisher and then about a year and a half for it to, to hit the streets. You've been listening to an interview with John Sales. His latest novel is Jamie McGillifray, The Renegade's Journey. Special thanks to Elaine Petricelli and the folks at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, where this interview was originally recorded. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>